Oh, good morning. If you could turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Back in, I think it was November when I was here, we spoke about a man named Mephibosheth. Today we're going to talk about a man named Jehoshaphat. 
a little easier to pronounce, but still wanting to tackle all those ones with a few syllables. Really, the message this morning is how to be triumphant over trouble. And uh, opening him, and then what Mike prayed really was a reminder of uh, some of the situations that we find ourselves in at the moment. So I trust God's word will be an encouragement to us. You know, before we read uh, from 2 Chronicles 20, you know you're in trouble when your accountant's letter of resignation is postmarked in Zurich. <laughs> your suggestion box starts ticking. If you work in an office, your administrative secretary tells you the FBI is on line one, the DA is on line two, and CBS is on line three. <laughs> you know you're in trouble when the simple instructions enclosed aren't. You know you're in trouble when people send your wife sympathy cards on your anniversary. <laughs> or when the plumber floats by on your kitchen table. And you know you're in trouble when you make more than you ever made, you owe more than you ever owed, and you have less than you've ever had. You know you're in trouble. I think it goes without saying, doesn't it, that um, whether you're, you know the Lord Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, and I trust you do, or if you don't, and I trust you will, that life can be difficult, huh? When you read 2 Chronicles 20, it begs the question, what do you do? And this is what Jehoshaphat struggled with. What do you do when life is coming down on you hard? When there seems to be no way out? Similar to what happened when the Israelites were ready to cross the Red Sea. And they had the desert. They had the mountains. They had the armies coming. And they had this water. What do you do? What do you do when... The obstacles appear to be monumental. What do you do when we're, we're worried or we're afraid? Second Chronicles 20 is the story of a man who learned how to be triumphant over trouble. Interesting about this guy, for the time we have, just to know that in Second Chronicles 17.6, it said about Jehoshaphat that he was a good king in Judah. It says of him in verse 6 that his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And then 2 Chronicles 17, just a few verses later in verse 10, tells us that in those days, the way that the Lord protected him. And it says, now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. But you come to chapter 20, and we're going to see that God loosens his sovereign grip on the nations around Judah, and he allows the enemies of Jehoshaphat to come against him. And we have a full-blown crisis, if you like. Verse 1, now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with, the, with some of the Menuhites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazaron Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. God allows the enemy to attack. God 
back in chapter 17, didn't allow that. But in chapter 20, he does. If you like, in our lives, there's this kind of combination, maybe, of some back and forth by the sovereign hand of God that sometimes we're living in chapter 17 situations. And then by his sovereign will, there are times that he allows us to be in chapter 20. Life's not all about, as we well know, about chapter 17. Always wonderful, everything is great. We're experiencing God's protective hand. There's times for his purposes, and we're going to see why, that he loosens that sovereign grip of protection, and he wants Jehoshaphat and the Israelites to go through something that's admittedly tough, but it's going to help them in the long run. You might be here this morning and you say, you know what, I can kind of understand exactly what Jehoshaphat was feeling in those first three verses. God may be allowing you, right where you are this morning, to be under attack. It's not three nations that are coming at you. That's not going to be your situation today, but it's those key areas in your life and in mine where we feel like he did, threatened. Maybe even for your physical safety for your emotional security and your mental well-being. Maybe today it's your health where it's under attack. Or it may be your marriage, or it's your children, or it's job pressures, it's the financial crisis, the economic crisis that we're in, that so many say you have to go back to the 30s to even make comparisons with. You might be here this morning and you say, I'm under attack with a sinful habit that I just can't seem to shake. It's a struggle. And it seems like it's a constant attack. And you wish for and you long for 17, the experience of chapter 17. But it's time for Jehoshaphat, and we're going to see as we read here, to experience the protection of God in another way. And there's four things I want us to quickly see today that Jehoshaphat and his people did that caused them to triumph over trouble. And if you and I apply these principles, they'll work in our lives as well. And the first thing is, and we just kind of realized it, didn't we, when we looked at verse 3. He seeks the Lord. You know, this is, this is elementary stuff that what I'm covering today. This isn't deep, but this is sometimes what we find hard to do, isn't it? To seek the Lord. He turns to the Lord, and he does something that a lot of us maybe have experienced and maybe haven't, but he proclaims a fast. I was just talking to a friend of mine about this very thing. He was somewhat lamenting what his spiritual condition was at the moment. He was feeling apathetic. The holidays, he took a holiday, if you like, with God and took that time away from fellowship with him, and really wasn't vibrant in his faith. Maybe you've been there. I have. But he took this holiday, and we were talking about it last week, and he was saying, you know, this was the situation, and I said, as I was looking at this passage, we need to come before God. We need to seek God on this, and maybe you even need to fast. Tell God, by doing that very thing, not everyone else, but fasting, telling God that you're serious enough about this, that you want your relationship with God to improve, that you want to confess this sin in your life, that you're even willing to forsake a breakfast or a lunch or a dinner, if that's the case. And I'm not telling you to do that. I don't know what your medical condition is today and if that's healthy for you. But in this case, Jehoshaphat says he turns his attention to seek the Lord and proclaim to fast throughout all Judah. And then it goes on to say in verse 4, so Judah gathered together, to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. And then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O Lord, 
the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Fascinating, isn't it? This is the model. This is the model way to do it. Not only does he seek God, but he begins with praise. So often in our situation, and I understand this, is when we, we see the situation, one of those storms, one of those crises, full-blown crises that you might be going through. And you know what? You say, Randy, I'm not going through one of them. I'm going through three or four of those that you just mentioned. And sometimes what we do is, is we say, okay, well, I'm just going to focus. And I'm going to just concentrate on this problem. And I'm going to just lay out the problem. And somewhere in it, maybe, we remember that we can kind of figure out some way to praise God in it, too. But what Jehoshaphat does is he starts with praise. And it's a tremendous faith builder because notice what he says in that awesome, and memorize this verse, uh, 2 Chronicles 20, verses 5 and 6. A couple of four things he says that are super important. He says, you are the God of our fathers. In other words, our God, if you know him today, he has a history. He has a track record. And you can go back to Adam and Eve and how he took care of them, and you can go back to Noah, and you can go back to Abraham, as he mentions, and you can go back to all the characters that we've read about in the Bible and see that God has a history and that he always comes through. He's the God of our fathers, and that's who you know today I trust and are worshiping. And he's not only that, but he lives in the heavens. His zip code isn't here on earth. His zip code is up in heaven, as we were talking about just a few moments ago when Dean was speaking about one day we're just going to be up there. And we're not going to take all these possessions with us. So there won't need to be a moving truck or anything like that. We're going to be in his presence. He's the God in the heavens. He's above all things. And what you and I can trust in when we say that he's also the God in the heavens is because he's in heaven, he is a righteous God and he's holy. And so therefore, whatever he's allowing in our lives, he has the right. His place is in heaven. And he also went on to say, Jehoshaphat, he's the ruler over the nations. He's sovereign. And in a sense, as Jehoshaphat is praying this, and, and I'm sure it's, he's thinking, you know what? You're the ruler over the nations. Therefore, what do these three nations on earth have to do with defeating you, God? What are three nations when God rules the world? And you think in your own situation, and I don't minimize it. I don't minimize it. But you think, is it bigger? Whatever it is. Whatever it is that you're going through today, is it bigger than the ruler of the nations? And I would say to you, I don't think so. I really don't. And lastly, we don't have a wimpy God. He's a God who's all-powerful. He's the God of power. He's the only one. We sometimes think we can do this. We can do what we wish and get away with it. We can't. But he's the only one who does exactly what he pleases. And as Genesis tells us, the judge of the earth, will always do right. Genesis 18, 25. We never have to worry or never have to question. We do. But we know what the answer is. is when we question God, we don't have to because he always does what's right. And I can just see, as Jehoshaphat is starting to pray this with the people and he's setting this example, this question is probably coming into them. How big is our God? Is he big? Is he huge? Do we ascribe greatness to him? Or is our God, with whatever it is that they were going through in ourselves as well, small? And our problems are big. It makes a big difference. Is he a wimp? 
He's not. How you view God affects how you respond to him, doesn't it? And you and I today, I remind you, we can trust him because he's holy, he's perfect, he's the king, and he's all-powerful. And don't forget this. He loves you. He loves me. He loves you and I. We are the apple of his eye for those of us who know him. And so it's against his nature. He cannot do anything to us that is cruel or unkind, even though we sometimes may wonder, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Might be experiencing things today where you feel like, you know, Randy, if the truth be told, inside I am just absolutely melting with fear, like Jehoshaphat was here. He said, but yet he did the right thing. He turned to God. And his strength and confidence as he was approaching God began to grow. It's kind of like, I can just see it like this spiritual muscles are just starting to develop. You know, and if, you know, I see some guys at the gym, and I don't ever see ladies really do this, but there's these guys at the gyms that are posers. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them. I don't know if there's anyone here today that's a poser, but they're standing in front of the mirror, and every time they get a chance, they're looking at themselves, and they're doing this, or, you know, walking sideways and looking, and... You know, doing this and seeing for the definition, and I just sometimes look at him and I go, you're a poser, you know, I'm thinking to myself. <laughs> it's a word we used in Ireland. I don't know if we use that word here, but it's a person that's kind of in love with himself, and they're, they're putting all this emphasis on their muscles. I said to somebody the other day, I just have little mounds. That's all they are. You know, I work out, but not like some guys I see. But our spiritual muscles, if you like, they're getting stretched. And they're, they're developing, not as we're focusing on the problem. That's not going to do it. If anything, that's just going to like be a pinprick and just let whatever is there out. But we need to be focusing on God and declaring back his promises and, and just reciting back this prayer and taking that situation that you're in and just saying, you know what, I'm going to pray exactly what Jehoshaphat prayed here in Second Chronicles 20. And as I said, when I alluded to the issue of track record, he says that in verse 7, doesn't he? He said, did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? God has a track record. And it's not like this. We've seen over the last few months certain charts not doing much of this. They're pretty much doing this. But God doesn't have that kind of track record. It's absolutely perfect. And everything that he has done, he has batted a 1,000. He scores 100% and then some in our lives. What a God. And it's important for us to remember this and praise God for what he's done in the past. Don't forget the things, not only that he's done for his people that's recorded here in the Word, but in your own life personally, how God came through for you here. He came through for you there. He protected you here. He protected you probably when you didn't even know it. And then even when he hasn't allowed his protection on you and he's allowed you to go through something, maybe even physical, something emotional, something in some way like that that you're touched, God in his sovereign purposes has allowed it, but he's been there for you. He hasn't abandoned you in it. He says this in verse 7. He recalls the promises that he made to Abraham. And then he also goes on to recall the promises made to Solomon. When he finished the temple, verse 8, they have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house 
and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. So for us today, we have to really think this through. What do we do when this occurs in our life, when the enemies are coming, when the battles are, are lining up, and we feel the, the wind, and it's coming right at us, and it's right at our back? What do we do when we face those trials and tribulations? Do we praise God? Not for it, but what he's going to do in it. Do we put our trust in him? And really the truth is, and this is one of these things that kind of where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? That our true litmus test, if you like, as believers and how we're doing in our character and how we're developing and growing is often revealed when we face real problems, isn't it? It's, it's pretty easy in some respects when everything is going fine. But the real test of what, how deep your foundation is, how deep your roots are in God are when the storms are coming. Rarely do you see, unless the tree's diseased or for some other reason like that, do trees just topple over. There may be a bad root condition there, and that's another issue. But during the storms, where the roots haven't been deep is when the thing often comes down, and you wonder, why did these other trees survive and withstand the storm when others didn't? And you sometimes notice, and when they look at it, you say, wow, the root condition in this, it wasn't that deep. It was rotted. And our character and how much we've been growing and developing in our trust and praise of a big God is going to withstand when the storms are coming. And I know for a number of you here, they're not small craft warnings anymore. You're into gale warnings. And some of you are into storm warning territory. And then after that, it goes into hurricane warnings. And I could go on with the weather metaphors, but I won't. But it's significant. And I know if we had time today, some of you would be able to share how God is showing himself faithful and strong as you've been developing, preparing for this day that was coming. You didn't know it. All that time you spent with God and growing and developing in your relationship with him, you didn't know five years later what it was, how it was going to be valuable, but it's proving itself invaluable now. we got to do that. We need to spend time with our God and show where we're really trusting. The story is about a man who went skydiving for the first time, and after listening to the instructor for what seemed like days, he was ready to go. That's not me. But he was excited as he was ready to jump out of the airplane. And so he did. And after a bit, he pulls the ripcord. Nothing happens. He tries again, still nothing. And what does he do? He starts to panic. But he remembers his backup chute. He pulls that cord. Nothing happens. He frantically begins pulling both cords, but to no avail. And suddenly he looks down and he can't believe his eyes. There's another man in the air with him. But this guy's going up. And just as the other guy passes by the skydiver, by this time scared out of his wits, he yells to this fellow, hey, do you know anything about skydiving? The other guy yells back, no. Do you know anything about gas stoves? How do we handle our problems? Panic, like that skydiver? Complain? Raise your voice at those closest to you or to God? Doubt? Run for a quick fix? A sin? 
take the edge off, turn on TV, vegetate, go to sleep. I confess that's sometimes what I have done. When trouble has hit, I want to run away. I can't physically get in the car and drive away. I just say, I'm going to go to bed. And when Cindy hears that, she says, uh-oh, that's a bad sign. Just going to shut off. Not necessarily even wanting to go to God, sadly, at that time, but just saying, you know what, I'm just going to fall asleep. But you know what? You wake up and it's still there. So you've got to bring it to God. I was working on finishing some of this yesterday, and I was searching for a personal illustration in my own life. I like to always tell you a new, fresh story, something that's true about our home. And I wasn't coming up with anything until the phone rang. About 2 o'clock yesterday, one of my daughters said, you need to come over. Katie's just been in a car accident. She wasn't hurt, and neither was the other party. And I have to confess, my first question was, who's at fault? But um, being an 18-year-old, and I don't think she was, but the damage was probably about six or $7,000, and this lady was playing hardball, and I went there, and I thought, okay, so i got to talk about how to triumph over trouble. What am I going to do, panic, complain, raise my voice, shout my fist, grab her, literally, and say, were you looking, you know? God has done great things for us. He has delivered us from the enemy, the enemy of our souls, and he has set us free in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has brought us, and this is amazing, out of the land of the valley of the shadow of death, and he has given us this place of rest. And he now allows us, as, allows us, as Psalm 23 says, to lie down in green pastures. So not only did Jehoshaphat seek the Lord, that's the first point he did, but secondly, he confessed his inadequacy in the situation. Notice verse 10 as we read 10 to 12. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But notice that wonderful phrase, but our eyes are on you. Isn't that awesome? We have no power, but our eyes are on you. world tells us the message that we hear comes through subtly, very clearly, loud and clearly sometimes, is that basically, you can do it. It's all about self-achievement. You can accomplish this. You can accomplish that. I did this. I did that. The truth of the matter is, we don't. God in his grace allows us to do whatever we do. And it's not by self-achievement. It's because of the power of God. You know, I don't know if you think about it this way or not, but when you go to God in prayer, one of the key things you're saying in that very act of going to God in prayer is to say, I am humbling myself on a God that I need to be dependent on, and I cannot be independent of him. I need him, and it's an act of humility. And when we resist going to him in prayer, and when we just kind of say, you know what, if it comes to this, if it really has to come to this, I'm going to go to prayer. We're basically saying that we're trying in our own strength to do it on our own, and we don't need to take it to him. Jehoshaphat confessed his inadequacy. 
Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. For where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who's the maker of heaven and earth. Eyes are on you. And what God wants to remind us, brothers and sisters, today is eyes need to be on him, not on the circumstances. And maybe, and you may be like me, where I've had to now physically just turn off some of what I've been listening to because it's all telling us gloom, gloom, gloom. And we start to, and not that it's not real what's happening in many respects with the economy and the downturn we're in, but if we keep hearing that news and we keep focusing on that and it allows our circumstances to think it's grim, it's grim, it's grim, and our eyes are getting off God and our ears are getting away from his voice, maybe we need to switch it. Maybe we need to turn it off for a few days and use that time instead. Praying, fasting, claiming his promises, trusting him with our lives. And then verses 13 to 15, something else that's key. The third point is he did not give in to fear or discouragement. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. And then in the midst of the assembly, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mathaniah. I'm probably sure when I get to heaven someday I'm going to be corrected on my pronunciations of these words. The Levite, the sons of Asaph. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. That's the key thing, isn't it? It's not our battle. God's fighting for us. He doesn't ever has asked us to do this in our own strength and to fight this battle. And says, he says by that very act, what this guy says to King Joseph, do not fear. Don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Battle isn't yours. Think of the battles in your life right now. They're not yours. God's going to do the fighting for you. You may not fight an army like here. We're not going to fight maybe an army unless you get called up into the service. Any of you men or women here who are of that age, we're not going to fight an army in uniform. But every day, don't we battle? We battle. We battle temptation. We battle pressures. We battle, as the scripture says, the rulers of this dark world who want to re uh, us to rebel and defy God. God wants us in simplicity as children to come to him and ask for help when we face struggles. And we have a, somebody who says, I'm willing to fight for you. How, how many people can you totally rely on and trust who's going to do that 24-7 with the track record that he has? I mean, that is something that we want to, someone we want to put our investment into is a God who's like this. And then lastly, and this is very key in how to be triumphant over trouble, is, is we need to obey what God tells us to do. We can't just listen and then hear it and just say, okay, I hear you telling me to do this, but I'm not moving. And if God tells you, be still, we can't say, well, I'm moving. He wants you maybe to be still and wait on him, or maybe he wants you to be moving. Verse 16, tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. What? You, he must have been thinking. Station yourselves. 
Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. I'm so thankful God is, is with us. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the sons of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. I love that. No timidity there in wanting to praise God, but with a loud voice. Not, nothing to be ashamed about in knowing God. Tell with a loud voice that you know him, that he's your God. They rose up early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord. Interesting strategy. And those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord sent ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. Wow. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Interesting strategy, isn't it? But isn't this how our God works? When we try and confine him into our mindset and how our little puny brains, no disrespect to any of you here, I'm including mine as well, but when we think that with our minds that this is how God is going to have to work, well, we are so wrong in that thinking. We're saying that us finite folk can kind of box him in and that God has to work this way as I understand it as I can comprehend it, as I can take it in. And if you had said, this is the strategy, any military person would have said, you're nuts. There's some talk show host that I listen to on, uh, sometimes on KDOW, it's an AM station about finance programs. And I, I'll be listening to him on the way sometimes when I'm coming off of work. And about, I, I almost predict about within five minutes he's gonna say, what are you, nuts? And he, he's like this older, older fella, and he's just bashing people for doing certain things. And he goes, what are you, nuts? And we would have said reading this, what are you, nuts? March isn't to fight, but to observe. Harder to stand still, isn't it, than to fight. We want to solve the problem. God's ways don't sometimes seem to make any sense to us. Self-control in this situation versus an outburst? Well, my strategy is, is I want to have an outburst. I want to yell at the car yesterday. I want to yell at the lady that hit Katie. I want to yell at Katie. I want to yell at anybody. Self-control, that's God's strategy in that situation. That's going to bring honor and glory to him. We need to do what he says. And what did he do? He sent singers not warriors. How would you like to have been one of those singers? I, I thought when I signed up for singing, I was signing up to sing, and that's what I was going to do with my voice, my alto or baritone or bass or soprano voice. I didn't know I was going to be going to fight. They were appointed, and there weren't any volunteers. And the choir of Israel, which is kind of an interesting story, appointed by David, 
they ministered in song. And they stood up while everyone else bowed down. Lessons for us here, folks. We need to face our personal struggles praising, trusting, and obeying God. We need to remember that singing isn't just an act of praise, as wonderful as that is, but it's also a weapon. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's a weapon of spiritual warfare. When they begin singing, notice what occurred. So I don't know. Maybe you think, you know what, I don't want, them, and I don't want the forces of this dark world to hear my voice because I can't sing. Well, it doesn't matter. Sing. Songs that you know, hymns, choruses, songs that you've learned, sing those. Sing them out loud to God. Those songs declare the promises of God often when you're singing them. And the interesting thing is, is that whatever forces are around, and I don't understand this, but they're hearing this. And they're hearing this as a way that you're fighting in a spiritual battle. You're not talking to them. You're talking to God in your singing and in your worship. Spiritual warfare. So when you come together for breaking the bread, sometimes maybe there's a voice that, and it's not from God. It's not from the Spirit. It's just saying, ah, don't sing. And it's not really important to sing. Let the others sing. And yet there's tremendous power when we're all singing, whether it's collectively or privately. And what did it say? It says the enemies of God were thrown into confusion by the songs of God's people. They started attacking each other. They know how to respond to this. Powerful stuff. You think about Joseph, and you think about, if you're familiar with him, and Daniel, and the lion's den, and you think about David and how he was under attack and pursuit by Saul, and think about Elijah, if you're familiar with his story, and Elisha. And then you think about Paul, and of course you think of the Lord Jesus, and you see that as men, Jesus being perfect God, perfect man, they experience trouble while on this earth. And God always provided, the Father provided the, the doorway to victory. Jesus said it himself, didn't he, in John 16, He said, you know, I'm going to tell you something. You are going to have tribulation. You're going to have trouble in this world. But he said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And Jesus certainly experienced that as well. I remember years ago, I probably was just about 18 years old, and I was, I remember there was a song that I sang when I was in Ireland for the summer for two months doing uh, Operation Mobilization, doing some door-to-door book selling and selling Christian literature and talking to people and so forth. And I remember it was really important to be able to sell books those days because that was how we had our food. And uh, I never had sugar and bread before. That was our, what I was sustained on for a couple of weeks when the funds were low, but God provided. But I remember listening to a song called The, the Valley of Acor. And to be honest with you, I liked the tune, but I had absolutely no idea what in the world that's about, The Valley of Acor. It's in Hosea 2.15. And, he, and the, Hosea says, I, through God speaking, he says, through Hosea, he says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And you try to say, I don't really understand what this is about and what you're talking about, but I would just encourage you maybe today, read Joshua 7. In that little section, there's about 15 verses, 10 to 26, where the story is told about a guy named Achan. 
And I don't know if you know this, but he was in, uh, had s committed a very serious sin. He was, kept some silver in a battle when God said, keep nothing. It was from this wicked uh, nation, but he did. He kept it in his tent. And God, being a righteous and just God in Joshua 7, really took this very seriously because he disobeyed God, and he and his wife and his kids and really everything he owned, his livestock, was all stoned. And it says in Joshua 7 that God's anger was lifted. And he was taken, that the nation was taken from that place of trouble, which is what achor means in Hebrew. It means trouble. And God showed his grace again. And then when the, Hosea says, I will make the valley of achor a door of hope. God will take our trouble, all of that trouble that we're experiencing right now, and he will turn it into a door of hope, like the Valley of Achor. When do we need hope most? When we're in the Valley of Trouble. I remember in closing, just the story was told about a couple of small kids who were really um, very disobedient, rowdy, We'd call them in Ireland guriers, troublemakers. They were incorrigible kids, and one day the mother was just at wit's end with them and took them to see the, one of the elders of the church. And one of these older men, uh, one of the elders, met with the two small boys in his office and to try and make the impression on them about the fact that God was visible and saw all that they were doing kept saying to them, where is God? Where is God? And he got called out of the office for a moment, and the two little boys looked at each other. And they said, oh, no. Now we're really in trouble. God's missing, and he thinks we had something to do with it. <laughs> God's not missing. God hasn't gone AWOL for you and I. He's present. He's that valley of Achor for us. And he's going to show his grace for us in our times of need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that we are today, if we know you, we have the wonderful freedom that we have been rescued from our sins. That we've experienced your grace and your mercy in our lives and we have this absolute certainty and joy that one day we're leaving this planet and we're going to be where our real citizenship is and that's in heaven. And we want to thank you for that from the bottom of our heart. In the meantime, we know, God, that you've placed us down here in this world with all its trouble and trials and tribulations. And like the writer said, is there trials and tribulations? Is there trouble anywhere? And we know, Lord, that there is. A number of us are experiencing it right now. And God, we want to pray that you will be merciful to us and that we will trust you and see you as a big God who's able to comfort and who's able to work in ways that we can't imagine, just like Jehoshaphat could have never written this script of what you were going to do to defeat the enemies. Father, I pray that we will be those who will grow in trust and we won't collapse and wilt and fail you when troubles and pressures come, but we will be loyal and devoted to you. God, we pray, and we know we cannot, we cannot do this in our own strength. 
We just pray that you'll carry us along by your grace and by your mercy, and we'll grow and love you more for whatever it is that you're allowing us to go through right now. We cling to you. We don't rely on ourselves or on anyone else, even this government or any other person other than you alone, Lord. And so we really ultimately trust. We pray you'll help us in Jesus' precious name. Amen.